Welcome back to the Clinical Athlete Podcast. If you're not familiar with Clinical Athlete, we're a network of healthcare providers who specialize in the management of athletes. You can find your nearest Clinical Athlete provider at clinicalathlete.com. We also have a forum where clinicians, students, and coaches network, discuss, and share ideas and resources related to sports med, athlete rehab, and performance. To join the forum or for a potential listing on the Clinical Athlete directory and for all upcoming seminars, seminars, webinars, and events. Details can be found at clinicalathlete.com. This podcast can also be found on that website along with YouTube, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, Stitcher, and iHeartRadio. My name is Quinn Hennick. I'm a doctor of physical therapy in Orange County, California at Clinical Athlete Newport. I'm joined by Jared Maynard, who is the Clinical Athlete Webinar Director and a physiotherapist himself. Not a physical therapist, mind you, a physiotherapist at King Physiotherapy and Foot Clinic in Ontario, Canada, and that answers that question. What's up, Jared? (laughs) Not much, man. Physiotherapist and physical therapist. There is a difference. I'm glad we acknowledged it. Yeah. The difference is you have a longer beard than I. Yeah, it's true, which really is the thing that matters. It's only, yeah, it's the only thing that matters. So (laughs) the format of this show is Q&A style. We have a bunch of questions from the clinical athlete community, and we're going to answer as many as we can. Quick disclaimer, some of the questions we received were regarding specific injuries, a few of which are impossible and potentially unsafe to answer via podcast. There was one that was like, my elbow popped yesterday during a jerk, what to do? And so we would we would highly recommend you head over to clinicalathlete.com and find a clinical athlete provider in your area or email info at clinicalathlete.com for us to point you in the right direction. There were other injury questions that were a little bit more, little more general, uh, and we'll do our best to answer, but we'll still recommend that you refer to the clinical athlete directory or email us. Lastly, we got way more questions than we can answer during one show. So if we didn't get to your question, or if we don't get to your question here, there's a decent chance we'll get to it on a future Q&A episode. So, here we go. You ready, man? I'm ready. Okay. The first question is from Anthony DaCosta, and he asks, DOMS, or delayed onset muscle soreness, is the best line of treatment just letting it take its course and light movements, or is there anything else I can prescribe to people? So, this is a really good question. I don't think we still have a, a super great grasp on exactly what DOMS is from a physiological standpoint. And I think the, the theory is that it's kind of like low level damage and we're, or low level, at least low level sensitivity that we're perceiving from anything new. One thing that I'm more confident on is, is the repeated bout effect or the repeated exposure effect, meaning that if you're sore from this new thing that you were not prepared for or were not used to doing, if you repeatedly expose yourself to that thing, you will be less sore in subsequent bouts, even when increasing the volume or intensity of said thing. So, you know, if people aren't used to doing, let's say an RDL or like an eccentric hamstring thing, you can wreck yourself doing that. Like sets of, you know, like three sets of five on an RDL. If somebody's never done that before, they're going to be lit up for a week after that, or like negative pull-ups, you know, doing like a three count on the way down or something like that. Your lats are, are lit up for days. Um, but if you were to do that repeatedly over and over, that delayed onset muscle soreness uh, response would decrease and you would still even be able to build volume and intensity. And that's why it's really important in like in season to not 
subject an athlete to something new that's going to, or, or at least have in mind, like maybe we shouldn't do this if we got a game in two weeks and the athletes haven't done this for a few months, that type of thing. Or I'm going to do some RDLs. We haven't done RDLs in, in three months. It's in season, but we got to buy next week. So we don't have a game and it's, you know, we've got like 10 days or something like that. It's so like, maybe we'll do a little bit of that, but that's why it's important to like, if you can start that stuff in the off season. And then if you just kind of go on a maintenance phase through the season, you can maintain those things. You don't have to be afraid of eccentric loading. And I say eccentric just because that seems to be the thing that creates that type of, of muscle soreness the most. Uh, you don't have to be afraid of it though. If you, if you have that repeated bout effect now in regards to what else people can do, uh, you know, I think, totally anecdotally, but just making sure that they're getting their, their nutrition is on point. They're getting enough, they're getting enough protein. Their sleep is on point because I'm going to say like, forget doms for a second, but just recovery in general, like, uh, you know, pain pressure threshold and, and these types of things are affected with sleep deprivation. Uh, so you just want to make sure that you're nailing your nutrition and your, your sleep. That's probably the two biggest things that you can do to try to recover the quickest. The other thing is just to make note of the dosage. So, you know, as a coach, we, we do our best to prescribe things that we think the athlete can handle, but, and we always have in our mind, like, is this going to kill the person the next day or the next few days? Like we don't want to go there, but sometimes it happens. And so you can just kind of make a mental note. It's a retroactive thing, but if you prescribe something to an athlete and, you know, they tell you, and you've prescribed this very thing to other athletes and they handled it. Okay. But this particular athlete didn't, at least you have some information now. It's okay. Okay. I'm not going to, we're not going to do more than that next time. We'll probably just repeat that thing, whatever made them sore. And then the expectation would be that they're less sore each time. I don't necessarily think that there's anything extraneous that can be done. You know, some would say, well, what about, uh, my foam rolling and, and all those types of things. I think that you would get some short-term pain perception change with that stuff. And I think there is some literature to show that foam rolling can decrease pain pressure threshold or increase pain pressure threshold. One, it's basically if you get, they poke you and then you foam roll and they poke you again, and then you rate it as not as, dis, not as uncomfortable. So if you're sore and you rolled, it would probably help, but that's going to be a short-term thing. You know, an hour later, you'd probably feel the same. So I think then, you know, contrast baths, hot, cold baths, these types of things can probably numb you out a little bit as well. So if you're so sore, it's actually uncomfortable. You know, those types of short-term modalities uh, may be beneficial. No, no. What do you think, Jared? I agree with all those points. Um, I think that setting expectations, like let's say that we're talking about someone who hasn't trained a hell of a lot, someone who's not really a seasoned athlete, don't know what DOMS is. Um, you know, let them know, like, hey, you're probably going to feel pretty sore. We haven't trained in any meaningful way ever or in a while. So the next day, next few days, we can expect this. And if it happens, okay, no big deal. If it doesn't happen, great, cool. Um, now, whether it's a seasoned athlete or not a seasoned athlete, I think that um, looking at performance markers matters a lot. Um, just speaking anecdotally and you know, just for myself, uh, I know there have been some days where I just feel like absolute crap and I go into the gym and I warm up and I feel sore for sure. And I feel more sore as I'm moving, but the strength is there, the speed is there, and I end up having a pretty damn good session. So I think that that can help to inform some training decisions. Um, I think people like Tim Gabbett and other researchers in the, in that sort of discipline are looking heavily at what sort of external and internal markers can we use to figure out how well someone's 
tolerating training and responding to it. So I think DOMS matters. We want to consider it certainly. Um, but I also think that if you have a lot of it, it doesn't necessarily mean that you can't train the way you planned to, you know, maybe if you need to make modifications, maybe they don't need to be drastic. Um, but yeah, in clinic too, if I get some, some athletes who say like, I felt really sore, what should I do? I can, I'll tell them like, yeah, you, you could foam roll. You could, I don't know, put some heat or some ice or whatever you want. I mean, they're probably not going to make any sort of long-term changes. Uh, they might feel better. They feel good in the moment. And if, if that's no cost and you can do that at home uh, and I'm not telling you there's anything magical about it, then great. By all means use that. But um, yeah, so that's kind of what I think about that. So to your point, it's almost like if you set, maybe there's nothing that we need to do about it. Maybe it's a thing that is supposed to be there. It's a response to training. Like you said, it, we, we use it to inform our decision going forward. So mm -hmm. to your point, if we set the expectation right away and it happens, then the athlete's not going to quit. It's not a frustrating thing because they knew mm -hmm. it was going to happen. And then, and then why try to take it away? Because that's mm -hmm. like an artificial thing. Like it's there for a reason. Yeah. It's either going to, it's going to tell us what we were able to handle if we could have handled the previous dose and then it will tell us what we can then handle for subsequent doses. And yeah, then when exactly. Right. Yeah. And then when it's completely gone, then we know that we can maybe push, push a little past the bout that made us that way. Like, let's see if we can, yeah. we've adapted, we've quote unquote recovered. Like Mike is tell mm -hmm. will define recovery as the ability to repeat mm -hmm. the baseline or repeat a subsequent bout. So right. we could repeat the exact same bout that made us sore. And then the expectation would be we're less sore from that because we've adapted to it. Or maybe we can push the envelope a little bit. Mm -hmm. I'd agree. And, and I think that, uh, you know, if we come back and repeat a bout and we have less soreness, it's, it's an indicator that we probably could in, handle a, bit, a little bit more. And we could also use other markers, which may or may not be super accurate, but things like bar speed or RPE or other, you know, qualitative, um, qualitative markers just to, to continue to inform that because you could be a little less sore and you know maybe that's still the appropriate training dosage or maybe you still feel hella sore but you can handle more yeah and and to what you said before I, I think yeah it's congratulations your training is what it's telling you and it's also important like you said earlier to keep track of the dosage and if it's too much okay make a modification and you can do that because you know what you just did yeah and i would say i'll end with maybe you're too sore to do another training session the way that it was prescribed like the intensity mm -hmm. at which it was prescribed and that may be frustrating but you yeah. can very likely still do the exact same workout but at much lower intensities and maybe even slower but you mm -hmm. can still get practice with the movement so let's right. say let's say it's you, know, you squat bench of dead or it's not a clean and jerk like you got to keep it light but at least mm -hmm. you're still doing the movement you're, you're getting some deliberate practice in at the very very least so still try to get into the gym and maybe it just acts as a quote-unquote active recovery gets quote-unquote blood flow to the area <laughs> which probably wouldn't hurt and you're practicing the movement okay good question anthony beauty all right so the next up we've got a question from alex dirksen shout out to alex he's going to be coming on placement with me in a little under a month oh sweet yeah forum members that's awesome Exactly. That's how I initially made contact with him, found out he was at my PT school and uh, said, Hey, I offer placements. You should check it out. And now here we are. Um, so his question is, 
best way uh, for a student to learn about integrating strength and conditioning to rehab. So, um, shameless plug, clinical athlete is a fantastic way to learn about how to integrate strength and conditioning to rehab. Um, and I think that I'll, I'll start with just how I did that and then synthesize some thoughts into what I think other students can do. Um, so I did my undergrad in kinesiology. I worked for a year as a kinesiologist um, before getting into PT school because no one would let me in the first time around. Um, and so that gave me opportunities to start to apply a lot of stuff that I learned in my undergrad. And I've been training in one form or fashion for a while, um, whether it was for football in high school and then just training to for hypertrophy and eventually try to compete in bodybuilding for a while and now for powerlifting. So I've kind of been seeking out this sort of information for myself for a long time and then figuring out how to apply it to the people that I was working with clinically and then getting into PT school. Um, you know, thankfully it's something that's changing, but, uh, with, with the program that I went through, there wasn't a big emphasis on strengthening and conditioning. I don't think there was a lot of, um, really, really good information on that particular topic. And Quinn, something that you've said before is that PT school is not meant to make you a strength and conditioning coach. It's meant to make you a generalist, it's meant to make you a physical therapist. You can pass your boards. And I agree with that entirely. So, um, I think that for, for now, for probably the majority of PT schools, uh, there's a bit of extra legwork required. You kind of have to go out and, and find some stuff, but some resources that come to mind that are fantastic are scientific principles of strength training. Um, and that's by juggernaut and Renaissance periodization. Is that correct? Quinn? Perfect. Um, also Eric Helms, uh, uh, put out a little while ago, two eBooks, um, the strength, the muscle and strength pyramids, I think they're called one is on nutrition. One is on training. Um, I picked those up a couple of years ago and as someone who was fairly familiar with most of the content in there, I thought that was a great refresher. Uh, Eric does a great job of putting it into terms that almost anybody or, or literally anybody could understand. So I'd highly recommend that. Um, let me toss it to you, Quinn, as I keep thinking about other resources. You want to, any thoughts on this? Yeah. Uh, so I, I had a similar background. I came in with a exercise science undergraduate degree and, and worked as a strength and conditioning coach for several facilities. That's what I wanted to do. Um, I, and I decided after the fact, probably a year later that I wanted to go back to PT school. So my experience came by way of, uh, strength and conditioning sports performance internships and working in the field for about a year and a half at, at uh, several facilities before going back to PT school. So that, I guess I was lucky enough to have that background. I think that what you just described or the resource. So Eric Helms was on my list, Brad Schoenfeld, uh, his literature, Greg Knuckles is a guy yeah, so we're just kind of throwing out resources that you can just go dive into. Greg Knuckles is a guy who is, he, he synthesizes the research in a very digestible form and he's a boy. He's a friggin' genius. Uh, he, he does meta analysis for fun. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, but his blog, uh, stronger by science is amazing because he synthesizes everything down to digestible formats. And then Mike Zordos, who is him, Eric and Greg collaborate on lots of different projects. And those three are awesome. Um, you mentioned scientific principles of strength training. They also have, RP also has a book called how much should I train? I think also just dive into some of the literature, you know, that's mm. going to be a question or answer to all these questions that have to do with like how, what's the best way to learn? I think people are, and I was, and I kind of still like, you know, you get intimidated by the amount of literature that's out there, but if you, you just got to ask a question. So what is the question that I'm, you gotta dig it, 
specific. So like best way to learn about integrating strength conditioning and rehab. Well, that's a very, very broad general topic. Break that down into specific subsets. What exactly about strength and conditioning into rehab? Strength training, power output, or re- recovering from specific injuries? You know, ask and then look for those specific questions in Google Scholar, PubMed, and just do kind of a brain dump with a bunch of different keywords and get a, you know, maybe get 10 papers on the subject or close to the subject as possible. And then it's, it's brain reps. Just start digging into those papers. What you don't understand or what you still have questions with, then that's a great time to, to throw it to the clinical athlete forum or, or another, uh, resource like that where you have a circle of people who can help you synthesize things. So you, you go back, you do your own study, deliberate practice with reading literature, and then you come back to a group, you discuss, and then you go back on your own and you, and you read and you ponder and you think about it and you go back to the group, back and forth, back and forth. But I think just don't be afraid to just start diving into stuff and, and, and reading. So you just, it's important to understand that like we, we named all those, well, Brad and Eric and Mike are researchers, Greg. It was on our podcast. He actually said he probably won't ever do a formalized research study because he doesn't like the system, which I totally respect. But yeah, man. Yeah. Yeah. Also understand too that like reading, you don't just want to read one person's stuff, especially if it's like blog form, because we all have our biases. So, um, just start digging into all those resources and especially the scientific literature and then get some circles to discuss it. I think, I really think that's the best way to go about it. Yeah. And uh, another plug for a webinar that's upcoming, Mel Davis, who works with uh, Renaissance, she's going to be doing a webinar in January on reading and interpreting scientific literature. Um, and like Quinn said, like I'm, I'm still kind of getting used to digging in there, looking for um, papers that might supply some information to help answer a question that I have and figuring out what makes a good study? Was this well designed? What were the flaws? What are the things that I can take from this? while still being accurate in terms of the, the, the findings that they had. So it's, it's pretty daunting, you know, and, um, this is not super related to the question, but, um, when patients or clients ask you about certain things, I think it's another art to be able to answer things concisely while still being accurate to what the, the research says, because it's easy to, to give a nice sound bite that doesn't do justice or loses some bit of accuracy um, in terms of what a paper or papers or resources found or are saying just for the sake of being easy to say. Um, and, and it's another, it's a skill to be able to preserve that accuracy um, and, and not drone on for a long time. That's a skill that I don't always have. Oh, I struggle with it too. Hmm. Uh, I was going to say also on, I was thinking back to physical therapy school I would on weekends when I was on clinical, my like physical therapy internships, my rotations during the week on the weekends, I would travel to different gyms and to train, you know, myself, but also to just pick the brains of the coaches in the area because there would always be weightlifting gyms of or, or strength conditioning facilities in which I always wanted to visit or coaches that I really looked up to, at least within driving distance. And I would, so on the weekends, I would make those trips and that was really, really helpful if, especially if you don't have a strength and conditioning background, just reading stuff is like, it, you know, it, it obviously it sets the groundwork, but it's, it's kind of like learning physical therapy without ever seeing a patient. Once you, once you have a real human in front of you, it's like all bets are off. 
Yeah. None of that stuff that you learn from books has any context. It might as well be alien language. And then it's like, oh, that's what I read. I learned that. And now this is what it actually looks like in a real life human. So I would recommend, you know, if Alex, I don't know if you know any strength and conditioning facilities in the area, uh, Jared, but if, you know, Alex on the weekends could go and, and hang out with some coaches in the area or some gyms or, you know, at any time during his didactic, uh, physical therapy education, try to get out there and just, get into some facilities, you know, almost like a little shadowing. Yeah. A few come to mind. Uh, and I'm really glad that you said that Quinn, cause that just brought to mind, um, an episode of, uh, the jug life podcast, um, where, where Chad was, was talking about his first few years, uh, really trying to, uh, learn all he could as a strength coach and like traveling around and went to, um, uh, Fra- Joe Franco's gym. And there are, there, there are at least one or two, um, coaches that, that Chad really looked up to and, you know, remembers very fondly. Um, and you could find a ton of stories that are similar to that in the strength coach world, people who just kind of grind it out and learn from as many people as they can to be as good as they can, um, you know, and early on. So yeah, that was cool. And Juggernaut's obviously a, a great resource as well. For Absolutely. Strength conditioning. Okay. Good question. Moving on here, we've got one. So one from Instagram. We've got several from Instagram. So I, I made a mistake of putting Instagram handles as the person's name. So this is J J A N at J A N J A Y A Y E N N asks, can hashtag thirty thirty everything? I'll explain. Can hashtag thirty thirty everything apply during any overuse injury slash rehab? So. He's referring to tempo. The 3030 is three, is 303, really. It's three up, zero, three down, like for a squat. Three seconds down, zero pause, three seconds up. So this is the tempo that we actually have in the upcoming clinical athlete rehab templates that we have in beta testing right now. And it's also the tempo that is commonly prescribed in the tendinopathy literature, especially for patellar tendinopathy or any heavy, slow resistance uh, training protocol that I've seen is utilizing some type of tempo. And a lot of times it's that three up, three down tempo. So the, the question is, does this apply to any overuse injury or rehab? And overuse is typically synonymous, not synonymous, but equated with, with tendinopathy type symptoms, especially if they're chronic. It's a, it's a chronic inability to adapt to the, to the training load. And so to make a point here, there's nothing that I know of or that I've seen that makes tempo special in by way of the physiological change that occurs in the tendon or the tissue. What I mean by that, it doesn't load is load. So it's not that it's not some special effect from the tempo that creates the change. We don't actually know exactly why heavy, slow resistance helps and what doesn't. And also they just picked the three up, three down as an arbitrary marker. So it could have very well been four down four up, which would be all four or five or two or 2.5 or something like that. So it's, there's nothing special about three. It just happens to be what they pick. I think the benefits of tempo work in general are that it's a self limiter in terms of external intensity, meaning that you can make light weights still hard and you can still get uh, lots of time under tension and you can still get a high internal intensity rating like AKA RPE while you're staying below an external intensity threshold. So let's say you're having, you're having knee pain with squatting, 
but your trigger is only like 80% and above of your one rep max, or let's say it's 60% and above, and you're like, well, shit, I can't lift anything above 60%. I can't train. But sure you can. You can lift 50% and go three up, three down, three up, three up, three down. And you'll lightweight will become difficult. You'll get time under tension. The tissues will at least get as much loading as you can possibly give to them, uh, but you're staying under your external intensity threshold. And that's the beauty of tempo. So the, then the question of, can it be applied to any overuse or rehab in general? Yeah. I, I mean, I think so. It's just, it's just a variable that you can, that you have in your back pocket. I, I keep tempo normal if they can tolerate it. So if somebody's got an intensity threshold, let's say at, at 80% and above, like my back hurts when I deadlift 80% of my one rep max, my hip or knee hurts when I, de- when I squat 80% and above and same with the shoulder, then We'll keep tempo the same. We'll, we'll stay under that external intensity threshold. But if I can keep tempo normal, I'm, I'm typically going to do that because that's what's specific to the task. It's, it's when we're not able to get the type of frequency or volume that's going to create an adaptation. And I feel that they're deconditioning. It's like, okay, let's dial down the external intensity, but let's start going slower so we can actually get some reps in. Um, so it is just. It, it absolutely can be applied to any rehab scenario if if you feel that it's necessary. It doesn't have to be, though. And I don't think it's anything magic in tendinopathy either. I just think it's a quick, easy way to get somebody to continue to move through full range of motion while staying under their their training threshold. Jared, what are your thoughts on that? Um. I mean, this is going to be a spoiler alert for pretty well everything, I, I think, but I agree with all that. Um, I, I use tempo. Well, tempo, just as you said, is, is another principle, another variable that we can manipulate the same way we can manipulate intensity and volume and frequency and, you know, range of motion and all of that. So I also like to use it sometimes when, um, uh, when I'm, when I really want to make sure that someone can own, um, quote unquote, own positions as they're moving through a given range of motion. Um, because if you slow something down, it becomes harder to hide positional faults. Um, and also, like you said, it makes lighter weights, uh, feel a lot heavier. So you can still get that training stimulus at a lower intensity. So I can think of someone offhand, someone I'm working with right now. Um, he's been dealing with some, uh, some medial knee pain and some other, well, primarily knee pain, a little bit of hip issues. Uh, been training for a while, plays basketball. Um, hasn't really been able to make a lot of progress with his lower body training, especially because of these issues. So when we started up, we made sure nothing hanky was going on and there wasn't, you know, this is also a long standing thing. I think somewhere in the, in the order of three years or something. So, um, the rest of the assessment consisted of watching him squat and deadlift. And so watching the, his, his regular squat, uh, looked okay. There, there are a couple of things that I wanted to change. So, um, I wanted to make it tempo box squats to start the box because that helped us to limit range of motion, um, and keep it consistent too. Plus it gave him a bit of a sense of reassurance because balance was something that we were kind of working on. So if anything went haywire, he could always just sit down onto the box and then we slowed it down. So that way he could, I could see what his positioning 
looked like. And that kind of took me off to the fact that we need to brace a little bit better and start better. And then that ended up having a bunch of really positive carry over to the rest of the squat. Um, and same sort of thing with his deadlifts. We didn't end up doing tempo deadlifts. I've done them. In fact, you've prescribed them for me, Quinn. They're awful. Um, but they help, you know, it depends on, on the, the thing you're trying to do, you know, they can be a really useful tool. Um, and they can drain you, drain your soul from you at the same time. This is totally anecdotal, but I've heard Greg Lehman talk about the, I guess it would be considered an example of diffuse, noxious inhibitory control, where essentially you're, it's a noxious stimulus overriding another noxious stimulus. And Greg's mm. talked about deadlifts, if they're heavy enough, mm. it can help, it can help with pain mitigation, which sounds counterintuitive, but the thought is like, you're, it's such a sensory overload when you've got something heavy, your mm. body doesn't worry about like, let's, let's, we've assuming we've ruled out some type of like structural pathology or acute, yeah. some type of acute inflammatory process, but like a chronic pain, right. you know, the sensory overload is so strong with a heavy lift, you kind of forget about the pain. And, and so like tempo is such an intense, especially like a tempo deadlift. Like you can imagine the, just the tension that you're on when you're doing that in both directions, mm. trying like everything is, is working. You're getting sensory stimulus from literally every part of your body, which almost just makes you numb. Like if you've ever oh, yeah. tried that, you know, take, take almost out of that sentence. Like it, it, yeah, yeah I didn't feel things after. Yeah, right. Exactly. And it's not like, obviously we're not, well, I just bro and, you know, ignore the, ignore the pain and just train really hard. Um, but you've got, like, if you've established the fact that nothing is, nothing's going to rip off the bone and we're dealing with some type of just, uh, an acute sensitization and we've, we've had the pain talks and we've had the fear avoidance talks and all these things, like ultimately rehab has to be hard. If, if, if you're trying to create an adaptation, Mm-hmm. or some type of like graded exposure effect, you've got to push thresholds and you've got to, you've got to push boundaries. And that's the, that's the way it is. And tempo work is a tool to allow you to do that. Absolutely. Love it. All right. So another question from Alex, and this is not favoritism. This is just because I think it's a really good question. Um, most diagnoses are unspecific and are impossible for us to know specifically. Uh, what is, or sorry, and it's impossible for us to know specifically what the quote unquote problem is, as it could be a range of biopsychosocial factors. So, how do you chart something like that while maintaining a comprehensive chart that meets college guidelines? And then in brackets, he asks, does the college always want a specific diagnosis? Because of that, does that put you in a dilemma? So, um, just because Alex is in Canada, like, He's also referring to, and in Ontario, he's referring to the College of PTs of Ontario. Um, but I don't think that's going to change much depending on what regulatory body we're talking about here. So, I mean, I agree with his initial premise that most diagnoses are unspecific. Or we could say it differently in that if someone gives a very specific diagnosis, it would be extremely difficult if if it's possible at all to support that without some really comprehensive testing, which the vast majority of PTs, I'm going to guess, probably don't have access to. You know, we're diagnosing tendinopathies without being able to confirm them on imaging and all that stuff, trying to, you know, recognize patterns and make best guesses. But we just, they are educated guesses. We, we often, most of the time, can't confirm them beyond the shadow of a doubt. So 
And then, of course, viewing this within a biopsychosocial framework, people aren't just a collection of bones, muscles, tendons, nerves, lymph, all that stuff. Like, they're people. They're all of those things, but they've got experiences, they've got expectations, they've got a physical and social environment. So how the hell do you figure out, you know, what that problem is? Uh, and then how do you chart it? So I, I've been become more and more of a fan over the past few years, not that I've been treating for all that long. I've, I've been in practice for, for three years independently. Um, I think I started off charting things as being a bit more specific, like naming particular structures and pathologies going on there. And then realizing more and more that I really didn't know for sure if it was that thing that I was, that I was writing down in the chart and going through more than a few existential crises about what I knew or didn't know, which still happens every other week, by the way. Um, I decided to just go with, you know, hey, shoulder hurts in the front, anterior shoulder pain, likely secondary due to whatever, if I think that there are some precipitating factors that led to it. Um, more pain syndrome, I don't remember the last time I've written that. Uh, I've just written anterior knee pain or something like that and and any sort of factors again that seem relevant to that case um i'm i'm pretty positive that meets college guidelines um and you know i try my best to upkeep my other records to be in accordance with college guidelines too so we still have you know an analysis we've got a problem list we've got long-term and short-term goals we've got an initial treatment plan or an initial treatment on the first day if we get to it and then well, not if we get to it. There's always some component of education, which I count as treatment, as it should be. And then we've got a treatment plan. You know, what do you plan to do with them over the next little while? Um, in fact, recently I've tried to pull a little bit more from uh, what the folks at Boston PT and Wellness do with their their whiteboards. Um, and for a few patients, I've, we don't have whiteboards in the clinic, so I pulled out a few blank pieces of paper and have drawn out timelines. You know, these are this is where we are now. Here's what our main focuses are for rehab exercises, for other factors for modification. Here's what we can expect the next little while. Here are your exercises right now. Here's what we're going to be doing in treatment for the next however long. So. Yeah. And, and also thinking back to PT school, I remember, uh, I think an upper year student when I was going through telling me that, um, a couple, there was a good example of a supposed dichotomy, um, with two faculty members, one of whom was of the opinion that you should always be able to find a specific diagnosis for every circumstance. Um, and then the other one who was saying that you probably don't need to do that because it doesn't matter. And I think a good litmus test is will, a difference in specific diagnosis or the presence or absence of one for that matter, will that change how you're going to treat them? And if the answer is no, then it really doesn't matter, does it? Because you're going to treat them the exact same way and operate along this or operate using the same principles. So, um, that, that latter option, you know, where it doesn't matter so much, if you happen to have a specific diagnosis, like if someone comes to see you two weeks post-op left supraspinatus repair with subacromial decompression, cool you know exactly what happened. And I tell patients that like, Hey, we're post-op. One of the nice things is that we know exactly what happened. There's no guesswork here. And here's what we do. Uh, but beyond that saying that there's no guesswork, the, the process doesn't look all that different for me anyway. What do you think, Quinn? Yeah, no, I, th- I think that was a great answer. And I'm going to refer, we had another question actually on Instagram from Dylan Carmody. It was a similar thing. How much does a diagnosis shape your rehab plan with a client? So we're just going to make two and one here because they're both pretty much the same. And I'm going to first start by referring to the clinical athlete podcast that we just did with Adam Meekins, because he and I talked about this very thing pretty much the entire time. The 
the necessity, the utility of a specific diagnosis in physical therapy, physio land. So check out that podcast. I am very much in line with with you, Jared. I, I don't think that the diagnoses that we have in physical therapy are very specific. And I don't think, I, I think they're diagnoses, largely diagnoses of exclusion. And basically what that means is we can't really, we don't really know what's going on and we can't pinpoint it to anything. And we don't have any tests that are reliable enough or valid to even define what's going on. And so we're just going to give something a name. Patellofemoral pain, chondromalacia, even patellar tendinopathy, like you said, Jared, when we're not, you know, who cares if we're not uh, seeing an image, like we can't confirm that. But all we know is that the symptoms are pretty much like it. And we can say, well, it's a, it's a tendinosis of some kind, but even that, it sounds bad. Like these, the, the, these diagnoses, the, just the words themselves kind of have this like nocebic connotation to them. The shoulder also, subacromial pain syndrome, uh, impingement syndrome, tendinopathy. Going along the lines of what you said, do any of those diagnoses change the treatment? In medical land, if you're di- diagnosed with specific diseases like cancer or heart disease or whatever, we, there are generally a little bit more specific treatment routes that you go through. Like you're not going to have the same treatment for uh, whatever heart disease that you're going to have for bone cancer or malaria or whatever the hell it is. In physical therapy, we're not quite there. And I'm, I'm much more in line with you. I also have the benefit, like I don't bill insurance here. I, we don't bill, I don't bill third party payers in my clinic. It's all cash pay. And so I don't, I know that some clinics have the formality of having to kind of their, their documentation has to be such that there's medical necessity and there has to be a diagnosis in order for, for them to treat and in order for insurance to reimburse. And so in that realm, I know many, I've had this conversation with many clinicians who are like, my documentation is much more nocebic, diagnosis-heavy kind of medical jargon, but then my narrative to the patient is much different. It's like what you said, Jared. It's, oh, you're coming in with shoulder pain? I diagnose, diagnose you with shoulder pain. Now let's talk about what matters, prognosis and plan. Uh, the pushback on this and this conversation that I had with Adam on the podcast was, is our, you know, there's consent, there's informed consent here. Are we withholding information that would be an ethical issue? And so there's, I've had pushback in these discussions with, well, if you're withholding, you know, if they have some type of potential disc pathology, you know, maybe they're flexion sensitive, maybe they have ridiculous symptoms, maybe not. But to say we should tell them there could be some type of disc pathology here. Um, I don't quite know because then I go back to the data and say, well, disc pathology is pretty darn common in the asymptomatic population too and increases in prevalence with age. So it's almost like seemingly uh, a normal occurrence with, with age. It's just kind of what happens whether you have symptoms or not. So like if I'm telling somebody that, does it, does it really help them? Um, it, you know, if conservative care is changing and their symptoms are peripheralizing and their foot's going numb and their foot drop and they're so, you know, there are circumstances in which obviously structure yeah. matters, but in most cases, I'm not sure the diagnosis helps us. I think, you know, and tell me what you think about this, Jared. I have more trouble with patients that walk in the door who have already had a diagnosis or maybe multiple diagnoses and have had imaging. Like they come in with MRI in hand and they're like, look, look at my body. 
Look at all the things. Bam, 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 bam. And they're just like all so many things. So many labels that they now have ingrained into their head. They're, they've now, you know, they, they, their identity is now uh, conditioned with those labels. And many of those labels are shit that I probably have in my back too. Uh, yeah. They don't know that because they're, they're, the narrative has been different. So yeah, it, it, this is a really interesting conversation. I think it's one that will be had or continued to be had. And, and it's an important one. And I'm, that's just kind of where I am with it right now. No, I totally agree. I was going to say, if you hadn't brought it up, I would have brought that up. Just, um, I, I make it a point. I mean, as every clinician hopefully does to never lie to a patient. So if someone asks me point blank, like, do you think I have some sort of degeneration in my back? If they kind of, I don't know, maneuver me into a quarter that way, I'll probably say like, well, chances are probably pretty good because the research says that and there's a really quick but that follows and says like hey but here's what the research also says and that like it's really common to people that don't have pain so could it be relevant maybe we don't know um and often they've come in with other other labels other diagnoses or previous images and uh like you said look there's there's a disc issue and like that happened and it's around the same time as my my pain started I'm like well okay First, I mean, I want to make it a point to validate what they're going through, right? And um, after validating their experience and that it's been really sucky up to this point, unless we had, you know, that same image before where that finding wasn't present and then their findings or their symptoms happened and then we had the same image right after and there was a difference, maybe, maybe then we could demonstrate a correlation. Um, but, you know, unless we have that, which almost certainly we don't, I'm trying to think of any instances where we would have that, but, um, if we don't have that, then eh, I, I can't say it doesn't matter, but I can also just point to what the research says in that it probably doesn't change our treatment and it probably doesn't affect our prognosis. To me, I can't get past that. That's the biggest thing for me. Does it affect the treatment? I mean, isn't that what a diagnosis should do? That's the point, right? If, it, if I would, if I would think so. Something it's to subset it and, and that would, I'm going to do something different because this is what's going on versus this mm. is what's going on. So I'm going to do this thing. But if, yeah. if, if you're not going to do anything different, then what's the point of a label? I, even to your example, what if somebody does have, like it's clear as day, they somehow had an MRI two weeks from two weeks ago that was pristine. Like they just had an MRI machine laying around and their back was completely fine. Never had back pain in their entire life. Three days yeah. later, they pulled a heavy deadlift and in an instant, they know the moment that it happened on the rep yeah. that it happened, boom, got shot in the back, right, right leg went numb completely, foot drop, all, and then they got an MRI the next day and just an mm -hmm. obliteration of L5 S1, you know, sequestration, all the, all the nasty stuff. Yeah. Uh, okay. Cool. But does that really change? I mean, what, what does it change in the plan? Because the only thing that it changes is the fact that it's extremely acute and that person's not going to be able to do a whole lot right now, but it's still yeah. education on timeline. It's still great mm -hmm. exposure to the movement. There's not, we, to my knowledge, we don't have disc treatment. We don't have disc exercises. I, I know that we're going to get, I'm going to get pushback from the folks who, you know, prone press ups are disc exercises. I, I, I'm going to argue that because I think that 
Um, regression to the mean is a disc exercise. I'm pretty sure that the worse <laughs> a disc injury is, the mm-hmm. more that it actually recedes and looks yeah. more normal over time, literally heals. And the less severe a disc injury is, a mild herniation is probably going to look the same forever, not much mm-hmm. because the body doesn't care about it. Right. So it, it doesn't, we don't, until we can actually treat as physical therapists who are on the outside of the human body, we're not non-invasive treatments. We don't have scalpels and we don't have sutures and all these things. Until we have specific exercises that target specific tissues in different ways, I, mm-hmm. I don't, don't know what the label does for us. Yeah, I'm in agreement. Uh, we're going to do one more. And this was switching gears a little bit. This is from, is it my turn? It is your turn. Okay. This is from uh, Instagram, Tom Woes 3 T-O-M-W-O-Z-3. It's a good one. Advice on doing, wait, hold on. Shit. Now, sorry, Tom, we're going to get to your, <laughs> we're going to get to yours next time. Cause I actually have not taken a residency. His question was on residency. Have you taken uh, a residency, Jared? I have not. Okay. So we're going to say that cause I actually have some thoughts on it, but since neither one of us has taken a residency, I think that it's probably better, you know, we're going to be like, ah, maybe we'll have a clinical athlete provider on who has taken a residency and actually speak on that. So I'm going to say, hey. that, Tom, I'm sorry about you. Um, where was it? Damn it. Hold on. Hold on. We're losing our, we're losing our, oh, I bolded it. That's why I couldn't see it because I had bolded it and my mind went completely over it. Okay. This is from Ian T. Braden. How do I approach my DPT professors about updating the curriculum? This is a really good one. And there's actually several threads in the student section of the clinical coffee forum on this very topic. It's a slippery slope. I'm going to say this, especially the, in my, with my experience, anecdotally, the professors who are deeper in their experience or years under their belts, and especially those who don't practice anymore, maybe are potentially a little less open to change and a little bit less open to being questioned. And so there's always, there's ego. Everybody's got an ego and everybody's got a bias. And there is a way to push a professor's buttons that, that you're not going to get what you want out of it. So an example of like the tone of the professors in front of an entire class of 50 physiotherapy students. And then you jump up and, and it's like, well, I don't know about that because blah, blah, blah. And you start citing literature that the professor obviously hasn't had a chance to read. And so it's, it comes off as an attack and maybe the professor doesn't get defensive, but maybe they just blow off your question and maybe they, you know, try to deal with it the best they can. They're very, very nice about it. They're pro- you're probably not going to get the answer that you want anyway. And it's going to lead to more frustration on your end. And then potentially this kind of like invisible wall between you and professor, like that's probably not the way that you want to approach it right from the jump. If you do ask the question in front of everyone, you want to literally pose it as a question and uh, be, be respectful and have an inqu- inquisitive tone and actually be looking for an answer as opposed to like already in your head, you're really just asking the question to let them know that you think what is being talked about is bullshit because I've had that feeling. But then again, like, what are you really searching for? You're just patting your own ego at that point. So my general recommendation is get the professor outside of class after class, go to their office hours, shoot them an email to set up a meeting and then come to them and then brief the professor on the meeting. 
So if, if you set up a meeting via email or you get them after class and you say, can I talk to you about a so-and-so subject? Like brief them on what you're going to talk about. Lay down some bullet points, just some quick questions regarding how you feel or what you think on a certain topic versus what's being taught. And then have a little bit of literature to back it up, like, you know, cite what you're talking about, but give them the chance to go over those references as well. So don't just surprise people. I think that's the biggest thing. Don't blindside, especially your professors. Don't blindside them um, because you want them on your side. You know, ultimately, they still know more than you. Uh, So, I mean, that's the way that I would go about it. And I would still do so in a very inquisitive way. So you're, you're looking for more questions, essentially. Like that should be, you're not looking, you're not going to a, a meeting like that and looking for answers and looking for a curriculum change. You're going in there for the professor to explain kind of their rationale and then the, the program's rationale and ultimately for you maybe to form better questions to continue to push. That's one thing. That's a one time thing. You should do that throughout the entirety of your of your physical therapy career not just school but even those three years in school you're always you're always bringing this up like and then your other other schoolmates other classmates you can have these conversations with as well hey check this out i met with so-and-so look at this blah, blah, blah. We're, we talked about this and might need updating like if you if you start getting other members of your class to think as well um They'll bring things up in a respectful manner and then the professors will start to talk too. So it becomes this kind of snowball effect uh, rather than trying to be that one picketer and just like in one instant, you want to turn, you want to change the world and turn the curriculum upside down. You're probably not going to make friends that way. So just be careful and tactful with how you do it and be respectful with how you do it. Uh, but I think it can be done and I think it should be done. Jared, what do you think? Yeah. I totally in agreement. Um, this is rule number one. Just don't be a dick. It really should inform everything. Um, and so I want to kind of chime in and, and illustrate what Quinn was saying here with, with an example. So I'm going to shout out one person and I want, before I get into it, just if I were to shout out the number or all the people who came to mind as exemplifying what we've been talking about, it would be too long. Like it just, I couldn't do it. So just know that, that that's a thing and that I'm really really encouraged by the number of people and groups that are pushing for this very thing, um, for reform and for updating of curricula, um, and, and doing it in a way that is, is likely to get those changes faster. And that's, they're doing it by not being a dick, but also by not being passive, you know? So, um, people come to mind or groups, things, people like the level up initiative, clinical athlete. Um, so anyway, but, uh, but Mel Hudson, um, little Instagram plug Oreos and squats. If you want to check her out, she helps us out with some things here. Um, I I've spoken to her about how, um, she's a physical therapy student and how it's really tough going through the curriculum when there is still outdated information and, you know, narratives that aren't supported and are probably nocebic in nature and that sort of thing. And, you know, you, you have to have to learn these things and, and other information that's probably not super useful, um, based on, on how one thinks they're going to practice once they're out of school, but you still need to know that so you can pass your boards and then become an actual physical therapist. So it's difficult to, to, to go through and to like, just, you know, force yourself to learn it, even though you dislike every moment of that process. Um, and you know, she, she had asked me, you know, what was my experience? Like, I didn't know enough. So I had the, I had the, the bliss of ignorance that way. And I can think of a couple of people in our class who, uh, at the time I thought they were just 
well beyond me. And, and they may very well have been in terms of intelligence and, and they would ask good, intelligent questions that would kind of challenge in a very respectful way, what we were covering in class. But I don't think anybody ever crossed the line and then getting out of school, starting to do more research and, and stuff like that. I realized like, Oh, I understand now why these questions are being raised. So I didn't have to deal with it, which makes me all that much more appreciative of people who are doing what you said, Quinn, in terms of trying to talk to professors and, and ask good questions for the sake of, of getting the answer, not having that preconceived answer already locked in and going for that gotcha or I'm right, you're wrong sort of moment, whether externally or internally. So, so Mel um, has been doing this. She's been sending uh, articles to, to professors asking permission, like, hey, I found this thing. Would you like to read it? I think this is relevant to what we're calling or reading or, or learning in class. Um, and I think it's starting to yield fruit in that even even though the the curriculum is not being spun on its head and it's not being completely revamped because she's you know kind of pushed for it um she's had some productive conversations with professors uh she's been asked to create a, a i think it's a, a bank of videos for exercises to create a bit of a strength and conditioning component for the curriculum um things that like that sort of thing hasn't been done before for that school so that's real progress, you know, and, and I think that it's one example of what's again already happening and what can continue to happen in, in, in greater numbers uh, internationally, you know, provided that we that we push for it, but again, in a in a reasonable, respectful way. Yeah. I, I think there's people start to come around. Like if if as long as you're yep. as long as you're consistent and your tone doesn't change. I kind of liken it to patient education. Like if yeah. you're, if, if people are going to ask you, if you think you've got the perfect plan, you've educated the patient and they're like, yeah, yeah, it makes, it makes total sense. And then like a week later they come back and they're like, what was that thing you said again? I was like, the thing that that was the thing that was the most <laughs> important. That was one thing that you had to remember. You, you know what I mean? It's like, ah, you get frustrated. And yeah. then you, as long as your tone doesn't change though, like you keep repeating the same, be okay with repeating yourself over and yeah. over and over and over again. Say it like you said it the first time. I think mm -hmm. the same can be said when you're trying to kind of push the envelope a little bit in, in situations like this, be it your classmates or your professors, don't get frustrated because they're not listening to you or because they're just not getting what you're getting. Um, they've got to go through the same, like if they're just not, I think people, if you're just not ready to listen, you're not ready to listen. I, there was yeah. a period of time in my career and my student life and, and pre where there were just some notions that I wasn't ready to hear about. And I think back on it now and it's, fr and it's frustrating because there were other people involved like patients and clients and I, you know, but you, you but it was, I was lucky enough to have it repeated to me over and over and over. And finally it just clicked. So you just got to keep that in mind. Just don't get frustrated. I was looking up. I'm sorry if, if you guys heard me typing in the background. I thought I muted myself, but I didn't. There was, a, I was trying to look up Benjamin Franklin had a group. I don't know. I'm going back. I'm going way back. Man. Uh, Benjamin, oh, gee. Ben, yeah. It was a mutual improvement club and they met once a week. The name of which I'll get here in a second. Oh, it's called Junto. J U N T O. It was Ben Franklin's Junto group. And it was 10 people or 11 people, I think, in the town. And it was a mutual improvement club. So they meet once a week. The, the spirit, though, their, their kind of philosophy was what I want, wanted to read. They met in the spirit of inquiry after truth 
without fondness of dispute or desire of victory. And I think that last part is key. Without fondness of dispute. So if, if you're just a contrarian and you're going in looking for a fight, then you're, you're a part of the problem. And mm-hmm. this is, you see this in internet debate all the time on Facebook. You know, let's say we're having, I'm having a discussion with somebody or you having discussions with somebody and you link a couple papers and you're like, Hey, check these out in a very respectful way. And then what does that person do? Comes back in three seconds and says, Oh, okay, great. But what about bam, bam, bam? Obviously that other person didn't read the discussion or didn't read the papers. And it's just like, in that same person, when, when asked to take it to a, a, like a private forum or via email, crickets. Because it seems like I think people are just more apt to, hey, look at me in this public forum having this discussion. I'm so smart, but yet don't actually want to learn about the topic. So I'm going to read that again because I love it. In the sincere spirit of inquiry after truth without fondness of dispute or desire of victory. So you shouldn't care who wins. Nobody wins. We all win if, if we're learning. Uh, so I just thought that was relevant and it, it was something I just read about. So I was excited to share. <laughs> you were eager to, uh, to pass on what you'd learned. Yeah. Well, I, I think that's great though. Um, I think it's really cool. That was Benjamin Franklin's group. If he was, you know, thinking a little further ahead, he could have marketed that as a master class. But, uh, <laughs> I, I think that, um, one quality that I really admire amongst, uh, not just clinicians, but scientists in general or, or, yeah, we'll stick with scientists it is this understanding that there's a, there's a hell of a lot that we don't know. And I think that people who know a lot recognize probably more readily what they don't know or that they don't know a lot. And there's typically a, a better sense of, um, I'm speaking general here again, humility and, and willingness to ask questions for the sake of getting an answer and, and to, to learn more about, you know, maybe something that they didn't know about, or at least where someone else is coming from, because it happens enough where two people start off thinking they're saying different things, but really they're saying the same thing or agree on a core principle. And then, you know, after uh, a couple of exchanges, they realize, Oh, we're we're actually thinking the same thing. So uh, approaching things in in that spirit of humility and honesty is, is important. I love it. I think that's a great place to stop. Uh, this was good. I like this format. I, yeah, this is good stuff. And, and again, if we didn't get to your question, it's, there's a good possibility that we'll get to in a future show. And we're hoping to bring on some clinical athlete providers or other guests to join us on these Q and A's to get some different perspective. Uh, check out, we've got webinars coming up that Jared's, uh, manning up and, and scheduling and doing an awesome job with that. We're going to have the 2019 seminar schedule rolling out here pretty soon with a couple new surprises. And lots of good projects on the way. So just keep up to date with Clinical Athlete social media and uh, the website, clinicalathlete.com. And Jared, thanks for joining me, man. My pleasure. I'm just the kid in the team that's happy to be here. Well, that's, we're all just happy to be here, man. <laughs> YOLO. YOLO. <laughs> all right. Good night to our six listeners. <laughs>